All right, guys, we're going we're gonna to pray. It's 10 o'clock, and we've got a lot of stuff to cover. We're doing a new study in hermeneutics, and so I have sheets. Kevin, if you could hand these out. Maybe I'll keep back one for myself. On the back is a quiz, so you don't want to look at that just yet. Don't look at the quiz just yet. All right, we got a lot to cover, so let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to gather in your house for worship. And Father, we pray now that as we open your word, as we come to your word and we examine how to better study it, we pray that you would uh, give us understanding. May any questions be helpful. Lord, give me wisdom as I seek to articulate these things. And we just pray that it would be helpful for your people as they seek to be good students of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You can go to Acts chapter 8. Good morning. Good to see you all. Acts chapter 8. In Acts chapter 8, Luke recounts the story of Philip the Evangelist who encounters a man from Ethiopia. That is in East Africa. And he was a eunuch. He was... Uh, a court official of Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, and he was returning from Jerusalem. Apparently he had come there to, to worship, and he was returning as he was, and as he was sitting in his chariot en route to, back to Africa. We read that he was reading from the prophet Isaiah. And uh, he's reading about Jesus Christ, some of those rich prophecies there. And though this man had traveled a long way from Ethiopia to Jerusalem, apparently in search for the God of Israel, it would appear that he leaves the city of Zion without the answers that he seeks. And so then, empty, unfulfilled, confused, he begins searching the Old Testament book of Isaiah in order to to gain an understanding of this God of Israel, his way of salvation, what it is that he did not find in the temple. And of course, by the way, if you're wondering why he didn't find what he was looking for in the temple, just read the Gospels and you'll see the temple had become a marketplace. Does anybody need, I have one extra sheet, does anybody need one or Kevin, do we need? Okay, great. So he's disillusioned perhaps and uh, Philip finds this fellow, hears him reading Isaiah the prophet and he says to him, In verse 30, do you understand what you are reading? Verse 31, and he said, well, how could I unless someone guides me? He he needs some sort of guidance in understanding the word of God. The study of hermeneutics exists because a perfect knowledge of God does not. The study of hermeneutics exists because a perfect knowledge of God in the scriptures, doesn't. We, and many people like this Ethiopian man, will read portions of scriptures and we won't understand it. And we have difficulty with it. And uh, from time to time, God's people will find themselves lacking understanding. And this is where a study of hermeneutics comes in handy. And no saint on this side of glory will ever exhaust a knowledge of the scriptures. Okay, that's not the point of a course like this, right? But our aim in doing a study like this is to give us some tools that will make us more efficient and effective in our study of the Word of God. 
Now, the study of hermeneutics, what is hermeneutics? Is a study of the art and science of Bible interpretation. So if you have an, an outline there, again, on the back side's a quiz. We'll get to that later, so don't look at it yet. But uh, I'll have some blanks for you to fill in, some maybe things you can circle, take note of. And we want to know what hermeneutics is. The term hermeneutics originates from the Greek word Hermes. That's the, the Greek messenger of the Greco-Roman gods, uh, known to the Romans as Mercury. And uh, he's actually mentioned in Acts chapter 14, verse 12. They thought that, that Paul, remember, the pagans thought that Paul was Mercury and that Barnabas was uh, Zeus. Interesting. And so it's in association with this messenger, Hermes, the Greeks developed the word hermeneuo, which means to translate or interpret. So hermeneutics is the art and science of Bible interpretation. And that's important because as a science, we are recognizing that the Bible is comprised of real words. It is comprised of real languages aimed at communicating a coherent message to the coherent mind. And so therefore, there are laws that we will see that govern the, uh, just like there's laws that govern any meaningful communication, there are laws that govern how we must understand the scriptures. So hermeneutics is a science in some regards, but it's also an art. And uh, as with any art, hermeneutics requires practice. That is, your, your understanding and skill of how to interpret the Bible will grow with practice over time. Just because you learn these principles doesn't mean that you're going to get it right every time, right? Because there's an art aspect to hermeneutics as well. So hermeneutics is this field of study concerns how to properly understand the meaning of the Bible and the way God endeavored us to understand it. Let's just consider the role of hermeneutics. What role does hermeneutics play in gaining a knowledge of God? Well, it's just one step. Hermeneutics, or Bible interpretation, is just one step in the mind of man coming to understand and be transformed by the mind of God. So here is a classic uh, breakdown of just a chain of communication. You understand this, right? If you're taking classes on communication or something. Who is the sender in this case? And when we come to the Bible and we're trying to understand it, who's, who's the sender? The author, which is God. What's the encoding? This is where the, the message is actually being given. The act of the message being given, that is what we call revelation. And, of course, that has happened within the biblical timeline. We see that has happened in various ways. God, in various manners and times, spoke to men, and then ultimately in Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, right? But for us, what is the channel? What is the actual message? It's the Bible. It's the Bible that God has revealed to us. And what is the decoding process? Well, that is where we, we take this uh, this code, if you will, this information, this language that God has given us, and we render it intelligible. We try to understand it. It's the process of interpretation. That is what hermeneutics is concerned with. All right, hermeneutics, as we properly interpret the Bible, we are decoding, that's the second blank, God's revelation. Hermeneutics is the decoding process. The receiver is obviously man, and the feedback, in this case, is change. God's not giving you the word so that you can simply decode it so that you have some insight, secret, Gnostic sort of knowledge of God and that saves you. No. It's what you do with the word, right? 
So everything we learn in this class, we are responsible for. There better be some feedback. There better be some change to what it is we are decoding from the Word of God. Because as we'll see, this book isn't written to amuse us, but it was written for our learning and to change us. All right, so what's the biblical basis for hermeneutics? In an article titled uh, The Scandal of Biblical Illiteracy, Al Mohler shares some troubling statistics. He says that uh, we would not expect secularized Americans to be knowledgeable about the Bible. A Barna poll once indicated that at least 12% of adults believe that Joan of Arc, you know who Joan of Arc was, right? Joan of Arc might be Noah's wife. Another survey of graduating high school seniors revealed that over 50% thought that Sodom and Gomorrah were husband and wife. A considerable number of respondents to one poll indicated that Billy Graham preached the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, evangelical Christianity in America has to be more anemic than ever before. There is a great lack of understanding the Bible. There's a great illiteracy of the Bible. A lot of that has to do with the fact that in the very psyche of Americans is this pragmatism. We tend to not want to study things, get into things, unless we can see the immediate relevant value of it. That's very much an American mindset. But you know what? That's not a biblical mindset. Because the Bible tells us that everything God has written is for our learning, whether you see the value of it or not. And uh, the study of hermeneutics is important because it reminds us uh, of how we, or it shows us how we can come to the Bible and get out of it what God wants us to. And I think one of the reasons, I share some of those statistics with you and some of the information, because I think one of the reasons that believers have such illiteracy when it comes to the Bible is they don't know how to study it. It can seem daunting. It's a big book after all. We get that. But let's talk about a biblical basis then for why we should study how to study the Bible. And there's 12 reasons. They're in your outline. And there's some scriptures there. And I'd like to quickly go to these scriptures if we can. So let's go to the first of them, 2 Timothy 2 and verse 15. 2 Timothy 2.15. The first reason that we find a biblical basis for hermeneutics, or you could say the first of 12 facts that we should study the art and science of Bible interpretation is that we are commanded to do so. We are commanded to diligently study the word of God. So if you're there, 2 Timothy 2.15, be diligent, Paul says. And he's talking to the man of God in this case, Timothy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Well, that's a straight command. Okay, God is giving us this command. Uh, Paul will later say that all scripture comes from God. God is giving us a command here to diligently study his word. Secondly, we must study the art and science of how to interpret the Bible because we must grow in the knowledge of Christ. Go to 2 Peter 3. 2 Peter 3, verse 18. Peter concludes his second letter by saying, but grow, grow, this is an imperative, in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You want to grow in the knowledge of Jesus? How are you going to do that? We just meditate? Okay. Yes, but meditate on what? This isn't the 
meditation in the Bible isn't the idea of emptying your mind. It's the idea of filling your mind with truth. What truth? The truth about Jesus Christ. The truth about God. You want to know Jesus? You can only know him as deep and genuinely as you know his word. Colossians 3, 16 tells us that the word of God is the word of Christ. So let's not distinguish between the Bible and what Jesus has said. If you love him, you'll love his word. You'll want to grow in the knowledge of him. All right, that's another reason to study how can I know this Bible better? How should I study it better? Um, So we can grow in the knowledge of Christ. Thirdly, we should study the art and science of Bible interpretation because of the precious eternal value of these words. God's words are of incomparable value. Let's go to Psalm 19. Of course, you could see the references there in your outline. Psalm 19. I guess I should probably be advancing this slide here. There are many scriptures that deal with the incomparable value of the scriptures. Psalm 19 is a great example. Verse 7 begins, The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord uh, commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold. Yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and keeping of them there is great reward. We actually might cite all of one, one, uh, Psalm 119 as a a psalm on the incomparable value of God's words. We could uh, flesh this point out in in various scriptures. It's by these very words of God that we're studying that God has seen fit to make us wise unto salvation. Uh, That's what 2 Timothy 3.15 tells us. Timothy came to a knowledge of salvation by studying the scriptures. Boy, is that a good reason to understand how to interpret the Bible properly? Absolutely. The knowledge of salvation is herein revealed. It is by these words that we are brought to maturity and we are sanctified. Jesus would say to the Father in that high priestly prayer, sanctify them by your truth, O Lord. Your word is truth. How are you going to be made like Jesus? By the word. By the word of God. By understanding it. And it is by these words that our lives are sustained and nourished. Jesus would say when he was being tempted by the devil that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Do you look at the word of God like that? Is it of incomparable value to you? If we did, we would value a study like this, a study of how to properly interpret the Bible. Fourthly, you can go to 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, hopefully a scripture that is familiar to you. We should study the art and science of Bible interpretation because every word of God, all scripture is God-breathed. So scripture should be studied in light of its mydunist details then. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And I just draw your attention to again there this idea of all scripture. All, every little bit of it. Uh, here's another Go to Matthew 22, another reason 
or fact that gives us a biblical basis for studying hermeneutics. Scripture itself demonstrates the need for a correct interpretation. Matthew 22, in verse 29, Jesus is answering this, uh, the Sadducees here who have come to him with this very interesting idea about uh, their, their objection to believing in any, in any afterlife, no resurrection. They, didn't, they denied the resurrection. And Jesus answered them and said to them, You are mistaken, not understanding the scriptures nor the power of God. And he said, For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, that is, people who die and are with the Lord, but they are like angels in heaven. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, now listen to this. Have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Now, if you went back and listened in our study on Mark, the parallel passage to this, I brought this out. But Jesus, in verse 32, he uses this, uh, the present tense, reflecting what was uh, from the Hebrew, the citation from the Hebrew in the Old Testament, where God uh, identifies himself this way to Moses at the burning bush. He says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and so forth. He doesn't say, I was. He's... He's saying, I'm still their God because they're still alive. <laughs> He's the God of the living. He's God of the resurrection. I'm drawing your attention to this passage to show you something. Jesus hung his argument on the verb tense. The single tense of a single verb. And Jesus is saying, you should get this, guys. He doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am their God. I think Jesus is showing us, Scripture itself is showing us the need for a correct interpretation. Go to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16. Back to 2 Peter. 6th biblical basis for studying the art and science for how to understand the Bible is that some scripture is just plain difficult to understand. 2 Peter 3.16. <laughs> Peter is talking about Paul. And he says, Paul has written to you according to the wisdom given to him. By the way, that is divine wisdom, clearly in the context. And he wrote to you, verse 15, he says, now verse 16, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things in which some things hard to understand, are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. Hey, Peter's saying, some things that Paul has written are hard to understand. Can you think of anything that Paul's written that's hard to understand? <laughs> yeah, I could, I could show you some passages uh, that are difficult to understand. I think we'll get to look at some of those perhaps in the course of this study. That's a great reason for studying hermeneutics. Because the Bible itself says some things in Scripture are more difficult to understand than others. We should go to uh, Luke 24. You can go to Luke 24. Let me give you a seventh biblical basis a seventh fact from the Bible, why we should study, how to study the Bible. And that is because we are not excused from misunderstanding the scriptures on account of ignorance or oversight. Ignoring or misunderstanding the scriptures is not a valid excuse. Luke 24, Jesus is with his disciples and he's uh, been raised from the dead, but they don't recognize him. They still don't understand that... Uh, 
everything Jesus was telling them during his lifetime was to be fulfilled. But Jesus doesn't draw attention here in Luke 24, verse 25, to what he had told them, but to what was written in the scriptures. And he said to them, after they don't understand still that he was to rise again, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses, with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. All the Bible is about Jesus. Have you heard that? It's hotly contested, I realize. There are many, uh, for instance, Jews, Muslims, that wouldn't agree with that statement, but I think it's true if you are a careful student of the Bible and Jesus went so far as to say, if you don't understand that the Son of Man, that God was going to send his Messiah, and that Messiah will be killed and rise again. If you don't understand that from the prophets, you're slow of heart. How could you miss that? There's no excuse for missing that. Interesting. Ignoring or misunderstanding the Bible is not a valid excuse, according to Jesus. You can go to Matthew 15, 14. Let me give you an eighth reason, an eighth biblical basis for the study of hermeneutics. We should study the art and science of how to interpret the Bible because we cannot faithfully teach God's word to others unless we first understand it ourselves. We must first understand it before we can teach it to others. And in Matthew 15, verse 14, Jesus is commenting on these false teachers. And he says, Let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind and if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into a pit. Hey, this should be clear, but it's, it's unfortunately not. But if you don't understand the scriptures properly, you have no business teaching others what it says it means. I think we're going to look at that a little bit more today out of 1 Timothy 6. There's more scriptures I could give you along these lines. In fact, Hebrews 5, 12 through 14 comes to mind. Where the author of Hebrews is rebuking these Hebrew Christians in the early church, and he's saying, you ought to be teachers. But you still need, again, that someone would teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. What's the oracles of God? The word of God. And he says, you should understand it, but you have come to need milk and not solid food. Now this, And he goes on to use this analogy of Scripture that is used elsewhere, by the way, that, that there are some things in Scripture, again, easier to be understood, harder to be understood, and he's saying, you should be growing. You should be a teacher. You've had enough knowledge and instruction in the Word of God, enough grace given to you. You should be teaching others, and you don't, you don't do it. You aren't able to. You still need the, this milk. Interesting. That's a good reason to learn how to study the Bible so we can properly teach others. Go to Acts 17. We'll see a ninth fact for why we need to study the art and science Bible interpretation. In Acts 17, Paul is stopping in Berea and he's teaching these believers here and we read now they were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica for they received the word with great eagerness examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. What things were so? The things Paul was teaching them. You mean Paul showed up at the church at Berea, and the Christians weren't like, oh yeah, it's Paul, so we trust him. Whatever you say, Paul, we'll believe it. No. They said, there's a higher authority than this guy. It's God. It's the God who sent him. 
hey, Paul, if you're real, if you're the real deal, then what you say, what you teach, it better align with the word of God. And what's beautiful about this is that God is commending these believers. They were noble-minded, more than those in Thessalonica, because they, they received the word with ignorance, but they were, they were eager to examine it. So when Kevin or I am preaching, or we have somebody in, or you're, you hear a preacher on YouTube or whatever, don't just swallow it. Turn your brain on. I tell people, you, you better not check your brain at the door of this church, okay? Because that's not loving God with all your being. And God said, uh, that, you know, it's part of the first commandment. You've got to love him with your mind. All right. Well, that includes then a reason for which we are to study how to properly understand the Bible. Go to 1 Thessalonians 5. Here's a tenth reason, a tenth biblical basis for why we should study the art and science of Bible interpretation. And in 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul, there's different references I could have given you here. This one's a little bit more of an inference. But he says, We request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. It's interesting that uh, it is only by learning to properly interpret the scriptures that we can know what to expect of our teachers, what to expect of our pastors, how to know whether or not their work is actually good or not. How can we esteem them very highly? Is it, is it because of how they look? Is it because they're inspirational speakers? They make us laugh? That, could they get us out of church on time? What's the, what's the criterion? Do they faithfully teach us the word of God? 1 Timothy 5, uh, 17 through 22, Paul will make the point that those, believe, that those teachers who faithfully teach you the word of God, they are worthy of double honor. And that's in the context of uh, a remuneration, by the way. And so, uh, but he's saying those that they faithfully, diligently labor in the scriptures among you. How do we know they're doing that? If we don't ourselves know what the Bible is saying and how to understand it, you see? All right, go to, we're almost done here, 11, uh, Jeremiah 17, 9. Old Testament. And many of you may know this reference already. But we must see the biblical basis for hermeneutics because sincerity is not everything. I have talked to many people who claim to be Christians and all this or that, and they say, well, I, when I come to the Bible, I just love God. My heart's so sincere. I just have such a heart for God. I know he's just going to lead me in the scriptures. As if that alleviates them from any diligent study of God's word. But Jeremiah 17, 9 warns us, the heart is more deceitful than all else. And desperately sick, who can understand it? What's it? Who can understand their own heart? This would be a good warning to anybody who thinks, I don't need to take seriously what pastor's saying, or, or I don't need to take seriously uh, how to understand the Bible properly, because I have the Holy Spirit. So, well, sure you have the Holy Spirit, but you've also got a sinful heart. And you can be deceived like others have been deceived before you in the church. Twelfthly, you can go to Titus chapter 1. Finally, we see another biblical basis for the art and science of Bible interpretation, and that is that error must be refuted. Error must be soundly and biblically 
refuted. Titus 1.11, Paul says to Titus, he speaks of those that, that are, again, rebellious men, empty talkers, deceivers, especially uh, those of the circumcision, that those were um, actually Christians, by the way, in the church that were Jews that were trying to pull people back into the Mosaic law. And he says, these people must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things which they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. If you go to chapter 2 and verse 1, he says, but as for you, Titus, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. How do we refute error in the church? Well, it's, again, by going back to the standard of God's word and saying what you're saying doesn't align with what God has said. Now, there are probably other things we could come up with, but I think this is a good, uh, a good way, a good exercise to show you that there is a clear biblical warrant for what we are doing in this Sunday school hour, and that is we are trying to study how to study the Word of God. If there were an art or science that you could study and master to dramatically improve the quality of your life, you would do it. I know that because people will spend years at a university somewhere and then a graduate school, and they'll get these degrees so they can make a living. Because the art or science they have mastered, they got this degree, is something that will feed them. And obviously there's, there's a value to that. We need to make a living. But what about the art and science of understanding the Bible? Any Bible college or seminary with a high view of Scripture will require all incoming students to complete a course on hermeneutics. And this is because they understand that no one can properly study the Bible without understanding how to properly study and understand the Bible. You get it? This is a very uh, ground-up sort of course. It's been said, give a man a fish and you'll feed him for a day, but teach a man to fish and you'll feed him for life. So the course on hermeneutics is sort of about giving us, not, not the meaning of any particular passage, maybe in your mind you have ten passages, you're already like, I hope we get to these. Well, I hope you understand, we're trying to give you tools so that you can go to passages in the Bible, and I'm not saying you don't need a pastor anymore, I'm not saying you don't need the church anymore, but I'm saying that the idea of the church is to equip you to be able to study the Bible for yourself. Because God gave the scriptures to you, and not just to me. Understand? All right. So there is a clear biblical basis for hermeneutics, but let me just discuss briefly the practical need. There is a practical need for the study of the art and science of Bible interpretation. Just to kind of put this in perspective, today's Bible student, including yourself, holds in your hands the, the translation of a compilation of sacred texts from nearly 35 to 2,000 years old. Moreover, any given text in the biblical canon belongs to a collection of writings comprised by one of over 40, uh, one of uh, at least 40 different authors writing in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Koine Greek over a period of 1,500 years on three different Continents, the writers representing approximately 19 different occupations ranging from kings to peasants, and each writing from his own peculiar perspective by way of various literary genres. That's in the scripture we find narrative, we find poetry, we find uh, even just plain didactic teaching. And this means that today's Bible students are separated, in a sense, from the meaning of this ancient text by several distant gaps. I'm going to use the word gaps. These are the gaps of, well, first of all, I'm going to give you four. The first is the, the gap of language, the language gap. 
And if we're going to understand the Bible, we have to understand what was written. Okay, that's kind of obvious. But I I want you to to think with me here. Challenges to interpretation may arise from the fact that the scriptures were originally written in languages other than English. So we have the Old Testament written primarily in Hebrew. There's a bit of Aramaic in the book of Daniel. And then the New Testament is written in Greek. And so the interpreter, studying his English Bible, must overcome this language gap. And fortunately, as English speakers, we are blessed with multiple English translations of scripture, as well as an abundance of linguistic resources that can help us better understand the original wording. I was just speaking with somebody last Thursday on the street fair who seemed to think that because there were, this individual said, well, you have, Christians have many different Bibles. I said, what do you mean? Uh, oh, you have many different Bibles, the King James, the, you know, it's really the only version you can mention, but I said, oh, you mean different versions. You're right. I, I don't disagree with that. But the point of a version is to go back to the original texts and to explain to you what they mean. And I want to just, if we were doing a course on bibliology, which I want to do sometime as well, that's the doctrine of the Bible, we'd probably flesh this out more. But this is just worth giving you a, a, a little primer on here at the outset of hermeneutics. And this is kind of how Bible translations work. And I mention this because when we come to the Bible, again, we want to understand it, but we have to understand the language we are reading is a translation unless you're reading it in the Greek or Hebrew, uh, you, are, uh, you are reading a translation. And so here's the philosophy for different translations. There's basically two extremes. On the one end, we have the word-for-word word idea and then the idea-for-idea. Idea. A word-for-word word translation is called a formal translation. Examples of that here on the spectrum I have would be like the New American Standard Bible, which has often been criticized for being too literal. It's too much word for word where you're reading it and, and the sense is a little bit clumsy. You go to the, the original language and, and you find uh, it's, it's um, you know, I, I don't understand what they're saying. Why are they saying it that way? Well, the translator is trying to preserve for you the original expression. And you, as the, uh, the reader, then you have to understand what that means. King James uh, old translation is an example of another formal translation. New, New King James as well. ESV is another formal translation, though not as formal as the New American Standard Bible. So it reads a little bit smoother. Uh, Some other versions here, NET, NIV. Some have said the NIV is very loose. It's actually not, um, but it is a functional translation. It's it's a thought-for-thought translation. So when you read it, it's smoothed out. What the translators are doing is when they're reading the words in the Greek or the Hebrew... They are, they're saying, well, what's the idea of that idiom? How can we communicate that to people in the 21st century? And people who, uh, scholars who work in like trans- Bible translation for cultures that have never had the, the Bible in their language, they wrestle with this. How can we communicate to these people effectively the meaning of God's words? And so I would say this. If you don't know the biblical languages, Greek and Hebrew, then there are a couple things you can do to assist in crossing this language gap. The first thing you can do is take advantage of multiple reliable translations. That's why I have this up here. When people ask me, what what version do you use? What Bible do you read? Well, as an English speaker, it is a wonderful privilege that I have at my disposal multiple versions. And with those multiple versions, 
is the scholarly work of multiple men and women who had given their lives to understand the languages, and they've done a lot of the hard work for you. And so I know I've talked with Deanna about this. She has an interlinear uh, Spanish and English Bible, and that's wonderful because you can compare there and get two different translations of these texts. It gives you a more rounded understanding of Scripture. There is, so you can use interlinear Bibles. I actually have here an example of uh, just a passage of an interlinear Bible. You'll have the Greek text there in the New Testament alongside the English text. So if you don't know Greek, you can still use an interlinear text to give you more of the, the original sense of what was said. And you can, uh, but you can take advantage of multiple versions. Some, uh, yeah, I w- I'll, let me just stop there. I've got to keep moving. But I would say take advantage also of scholarly resources like commentaries, a concordance, something like that. Bible software now is an excellent way of helping expedite your research and Bible study. And if you need any, um, uh, if you have any questions about that, I, I could tell you about Logos, Accordance, uh, even eSword is out there still, I think. Um, there's different Bible software. I use Logos. I love it. So you can take advantage of multiple reliable translations and take advantage of scholarly resources and tools. We also need to remember here to prioritize, though, the meaning of the original languages over the English. God did not inspire the 1611 King James Bible. I hope nobody's disappointed at what I just said. Okay, He didn't inspire the King James Bible. That's a translation. There are people out there who don't realize that, and it's really a shame. Um, It creates all kinds of problems. Um, But no, the original language is what God inspired, and that's what we should value predominantly. I think I found this a comical. I took this from um, Andy Nacelli's uh, book on understanding and applying the New Testament. He has here a good little illustration. Ninety scholars with 11 PhDs apiece spent 25 years translating this passage. But today, I'm going to tell you what the original Greek really says. I'm sure you will. I'm sure you will. Please don't listen to quacks like that. Okay, you can get on the internet and people will tell you, I've discovered something that everybody has missed over the past 2,000 years, and today I'm going to illumine you. Run the other way. All right? Run the other way. Um, Ironically, most of those people don't have any serious credentials to their name. You'll find out they got some degree from somebody's basement or some kind of degree mail thing. Look, degrees do mean something. But um, remember to prioritize the language of the, the original languages over translations. Here's some reasons for that. Inspiration only applies to the original manuscripts, and so the original words do carry more weight. All translators have theological presuppositions, which invariably affect their translation. If I took you to uh, the Dewey Reams version, which was the long-standing Catholic version of the Bible, I could show you some things that their theology influenced how they translated words, and I would say mistranslated words. Just saying, okay? The original language has value, though. Has primitive value. Going back to the original languages is the best way to dispel common misconceptions about them. For instance, many well-meaning commentators and preachers have said things like, uh, that are just not simply true about Greek or Hebrew words. I've heard some of these things and and kind of chuckled in my time. Um, You know, I'm not like this polished Greek scholar, Hebrew scholar or something, but you learn enough in school to know what to look out for and be aware of. There are idioms unique to any language which cannot be translated word for word without losing the author's original sense. And so the original languages help us in some of that. And that's what you'll hear Pastor Kevin and I bring up some t- from time to time. 
a, a Greek word meaning a Hebrew word. You think, why is that even necessary? Because those words are the original words God inspired. So that shouldn't irk you. That shouldn't bother you. That should delight you. All right? That should be exciting to you. And that should, you should, we should understand, if we're going to know what was written, we are working against a language gap. It doesn't mean that people who don't know the languages are, are completely clueless of everything I've just said. Can't understand the basic meaning of Scripture. You can. Scripture is pretty basic. The basic things, right? It's there. It's plain. But there is a language gap. We should acknowledge it. Another uh, gap here is the time gap. <clears throat> and that is, should be self-explanatory. We must know when the Bible is written. Without a time machine, the interpreter must bridge this time gap between him and the writer. And scripture was revealed over many centuries. And so uh, there's nothing we could do about the time gap just to let, us, uh, let it humble us. And remember, we're not there, so we need God's insight on what these things, especially these stories in the Bible, what they mean. There's the culture gap. We must know to whom the Bible was written. We could, there's several things I could mention here. The people, their society. We could think about their customs. And uh, even, even like in Joseph's deliberation, Matthew chapter 1. And uh, you're reading about him. He's struggling here. He's going to put away. He's going to divorce Mary. You're thinking, what? The guy's not even married yet. What's going on here, right? There's a cultural reason for that. But why doesn't Matthew explain that? Because of a cultural gap. Just like you wouldn't explain it in some text you were writing to people today. You wouldn't explain everything, why we do everything culturally, right? You take it for granted. Because you're speaking to people in the 21st century. And you would be speaking most likely to Americans in the 21st century. Then people come over across the seas, and we have to explain things because they're in a foreign country, why we do what we do the way we do. You get it. All right. There's uh, differences in customs, philosophy. There's the religion of these people, especially in the Old Testament. If we, if we can understand a little bit of what's going on with, with this uh, Baal worship um, that helps us understand what's happening in, in this whole... First, Corinthians, uh, First Kings 18, remember uh, Kevin was preaching on that a while back with, with Elijah, Mount Carmel and all that. Oh, there's just there's so much rich background there. There's agricultural practices, economic practices, legal practices, military practices, all these different things. There's another gap, and that's the, lastly, the, the circumstantial gap. We must know why it was written. This breaks down into historical circumstances, whether it's a small letter like Philemon or, or, or it's a book in the Old Testament like the book of Judges. Those books were written for a reason. And when we deal with context, we're going to see this a little bit, but you can derive just about everything you need. Um, in fact, if I want to see everything you need, Basically, yes, you can derive it from the text itself. It's not like you need some kind of special commentary where if you don't, you're going to have false doctrine. The commentaries do help. We'll, we'll explain the tension there and, um, and, and how that works and everything. I'm just saying there is a circumstantial gap. We are not in, in the circumstances of the writers in the first century or going back to the time of Moses. We're not in his situation. So there is a gap that gives us a little bit of an obstacle practically, and it presents us with this, with this uh, need for studying how to study the Bible. There's geographical circumstances, too, that often impact a text. All right, but I'm just going to do this. We'll close with this. Okay, this is a group exercise. So imagine in the year 3000 AD, we're stumbling across this digital message. 
I had to make a quick trip to Walmart and got caught flying. The cop said I was 30 over, so it's well over 100 bucks. I was trying to make it back for the start of the Super Bowl, LOL. All right. What, uh, what would be in our day, and let's just say here, too, for sake of illustration, that our civilization, this present civilization, when this message was dated and came from, has long vanished from history. All right? What would be some obscurities in this text that would show us a bit of a gap here? Come on. Yes. Flying. flying, okay. Maybe in the year 3000, the Lord Terry's, and people are probably flying around in all kinds of ways or anything, right? So they could interpret that different ways, but if, we, if they went back into 21st century thinking or in the year 2023 where this text comes from, they would say, well, people didn't fly around like that. Clearly, this guy was in a car. How do we know that, too? Context, well, what about this one? What's that? Walmart. What in the world is Walmart? Okay, well, then you would do a little bit of research. You realize, well, you know what? Walmart was actually a place where people shopped because it was cheap. And, um, and you could get different things there. Cop? What, what is a cop? What is that? You realize, well, that's really a slang term people used for this kind of a traffic officer. And when he said I was 30 over, apparently this guy was going over the speed limit. They had speed limits on their interstate. I mean, people had interstates back then. Yeah, this is how it worked and everything. And so it's well over 100 bucks. Now, we could get confused. 30 over, 100 over, these are, you know, okay, we're using uh, numbers here, but they're in totally different senses, right? 30 over is talking about your speed. 100 bucks is talking about a currency. See, when we read the Bible, we read things like this, and it's so confusing. If you just jump into the prophets, you will read things about different nations that are being mentioned and things that God is going to do to them and why, and you might be close about, but can I tell you this? There are reasons for every single word and expression God chose. And there are good reasons. It's not a fairy tale. And the more you study the Bible, you realize it is absolutely historical, so much so that people who claim it isn't, they're just, they're just pleading their own ignorance. All right, he says, I was trying to make it back to the start, uh, for the start of the Super Bowl. You'd be like, what on earth is that? Uh, well, this was, you realize this custom that um, Americans, people in America, worshipped, you know, they were all about the Super Bowl, and... Uh, and you realize now the reason why all this was happening. This guy wants to make it for his game, so he's rushing back. He's going over the speed limit. And this LOL, what in the world is that? LOL, is that a word? Do you know there are words in the Bible like Selah, okay, Hebrew? We don't know exactly what that means, but we believe it's a musical pause or interlude. And uh, this is something that didn't need any explanation at the time. I don't think the person giving this text out would have said, LOL, by the way, that means laugh out loud. No, there was no need to. There is a gap. You understand? You see it? There's, a, there's a, certainly these gaps here. So what I'm going to do is I've got to close there. And we're going to do a brief quiz. All right? Uh, let, let me pray. 